If you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 8. Soon we will be beginning our reading in verse 12. We've taken some time off to go to 1 Timothy and and to read through that that wonderful book, and I'm glad to do that, but I'm also very glad to be back in the Gospel of John. Every Gospel seems to be taken up, of course, with the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and each one, although they are on the same sort of focus, the same sort of uh, desire to show and to tell the story of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Each one has distinct emphasis in a particular way. And it's not that the other parts don't come out. It's not that the emphasis in Matthew can't be found in, in John. It's just that they, they try and they seek similarly uh, in telling the similar story to, to emphasize different things about Jesus. So if you go to Matthew, it seems like Matthew is very desirous to tell the story of Jesus and how he relates to Israel and how he relates to the Old Testament. If you look at at Mark, Mark seems to be very much taken up with the coming of the kingdom. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus there is, is seen as the one who is coming to bring righteousness and to do away with injustice and to do away with those uh, various wrongs that the world has brought through sin. In each one of those, we see the work of Jesus sort of emphasized. We see what he is doing emphasized. In John, we see that emphasis as well, but there is a much greater focus in John, not just on the things that Jesus does, but on the very nature of who he is. It's the very essence of Jesus that seems to be the theme that ties all of John together. And so today we have a a, a reminder, if you will, about the uniqueness and the brilliance of who Jesus is. He is not just a moral example for us, although he is certainly that. We ought to follow in the footsteps of our Lord. But that is not all he has come to do. He is not just a savior, although he is that. He is the one who provides us with salvation. Jesus is not being emphasized simply as those things, but he is the revelation of God to us. He is very God of very God and light of light. He is the exact imprint of God and the revelation of all that God is to us. And so this great theme of John is returned to here in verse 12. It is a theme that has gone throughout the gospel. It has begun in the introduction and it hasn't ceased as we've moved through the book of John. And so we will continue it today. Let us read beginning in verse 12 through verse 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I have come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the infallible and inerrant word of our God. As we are reminded this morning of who Jesus is, I would like to remind you first and foremost that Jesus is the radiant one. He is the radiant one. 
He is the light of the world, he says. At the very beginning of chapter 7, we're kind of given the context for each of the next three chapters up through the, the beginning of verse, or the beginning of chapter 10. It is the feast of the tabernacles, the feast of the booths. It happens after the harvest. The Jews would come back to Jerusalem and they would celebrate the harvest. They would celebrate the provision of God for them. They would do this not only because of the harvest, but also simply in remembrance of all that God had done for them in the wilderness wanderings as he was a, a cloud to them by day and he was a pillar of fire by night as he provided for them in their wanderings water from rocks. And so because of these things, there were symbols that were kind of built into this festival, built into this feast. Two, very importantly, first a water pouring rite that would happen quite often. Each year, a very symbolic and very important part of this festival was the pouring of water. We talked about that when we were in chapter 7 last. But there was also a lighting ritual, a a ritual of of showing forth the light of God. And so in the temple at night, they would light four huge torches. And then men would light their own individual torches. The songs would get play. Men would sing praises to God. Women would sing praises to God. And they would dance sometimes throughout the entire night. And there are recordings of this happening every single night of the festival. So each night they would get together. They would light torches. They would dance with their own torches. They would sing songs to God and sing praise to God the whole night through. We need to step up our potluck game. Seems, (laughs) Seems lame now. Back in chapter 7, Jesus says that if those who are thirsty would come to him, he would give them living water. He is the source of living water for them, clearly clearly playing off of that water pouring right. And here he's going to play off the the right of lighting the torches, the the right of, of giving light to the people of Israel. And he says here that he is the light of the world. Jesus means many things by this, no doubt. And we could plumb the depths of the metaphor. We need to understand that this metaphor is not a Jewish metaphor, and it's not a, a, a Jesus metaphor alone. You can go to a number of different religions. These, this sort of metaphor of light and dark plays out in a whole bunch of different traditions. In Judaism, in, in, in the traditions of the scripture, it, it primarily, I think, means two things, and we can see how these play together in what Jesus is saying. First, light is a source of knowledge. It's a source of knowledge. It's a source of, of being able to understand things. Light, if nothing else, allows us to take in information that, that surrounds us. This is why, as we'll see in chapter 9, which is what all of this is leading to, there's, there's the picture of blindness being removed as a picture of giving light. When Jesus says he's the light of the world, the example of this is the miracle that will be done where a man is given sight. The rest of them, even though they see, are blind because they don't understand what's being put before them. They can't comprehend the information that is before them. We can't see in the dark. And when we can't, disaster awaits us if we try to travel at night. You have to imagine the the image of darkness and light is so kind of deadened for us because we always have lights. We carry around flashlights on our phones. We, we always have access to light. I was reminded of this when I was up at Bambi Lake this past week, and I was walking back to my cabin through the dark, and I didn't have my phone with me, and I had no light, and there was no moon, and I was on a road that was literally like 10 foot wide, and I know that it probably moved in one direction or another, and I was sure that I was going to fall in the ditch because I had no idea where I was going. I had lights up in the distance, but that was it. It is amazing how dark the world is. 
It is amazing how scary that might be for people, especially you can imagine the, the devastation of having that darkness hour in and hour out when God brings the plague upon the Egyptians and they can't see what's in front of them. You don't realize that today because light's everywhere. When we need light, we simply turn on lights. It flows. When we need light, we've got portable torches. We've got kerosene to burn. They didn't have those things. When the lights went out, work stopped. When the lights went out, you slept because there was nothing else to do except for maybe drink back in the day. You couldn't do work by candlelight. You couldn't read by candlelight. It was too dim. It wasn't until the Industrial Revelation, or <laughs> Revolution got the Bible on my mind, there are worse things, <laughs> that we actually came to understand that we could do things at night. People now work at night. People now go out at night. This was unheard of before. When Jesus says that he is the light of the world, it means that there is an ability to take in the world around you. He is what allows you to make sense of what is around you. There is a sense of knowledge there. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, make this plain. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall be a judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, let us come and walk in the light of the Lord." There's this picture of light being the law going forth, the picture of light being drawing people in and giving them information to walk in the path. It is knowledge of the Lord that is being given here. Later on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, Isaiah picks up the same theme, and he shortens it by simply saying, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice as a light to the people's. The law, the, the things that God desires out of you, the information you need from him goes out as a light. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, is compared by the foreign kings to one who is of understanding. In the former days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the gods were found in this Daniel. Daniel was a source of light for them. Light is knowledge. Light is being able to take in the world around you. And Jesus says, I will correctly give you the light of the world. But that's not all light is pictured as in the Old Testament. It's not just light as information. It is also light as glory. Light is clearly identified with glory. In Isaiah, again, chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Like the, the sun rising in the morning, the glory of God comes out and it shines upon you. The light from God is nothing less than glory, which reminds us or ought to remind us of Moses seeing the glory of the Lord pass before him in the cleft of the rock. And he asks God to show him his glory and God, God passes before him and allows his glory to imprint itself on Moses' face so much so that when Moses comes back down uh, an entire chapter later, he has the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God and Aaron and the people of Israel asked him to cover it because it shone so brightly with God's glory. The, the light pictured in the Old Testament is 
God providing knowledge for his people and it's God's glory. And when those two things come together, what we get is salvation. In Isaiah 42, 6 through 8, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, to, from, those, <clears throat> from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He's talking there to his servant who will come and he says to my servant I will make you as a light for the nations you will open eyes that are blind and you will bring captives out this is a picture of salvation in Micah chapter 7 we read this rejoice not over me my enemy when I fall for I shall rise when I sit in darkness the Lord will be a light to me I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me he will bring me out to the light I shall look upon his vindication. There clearly vindication is being stood forward in the light. And it's a knowledge that is revealed to him, but it's also the glory of God being revealed to him. All of this culminates, of course, in Jesus Christ, who in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. When God's glory and knowledge meet and it's revealed to you, there is nothing but salvation there for you. Jesus Christ has come so that he might shine forward with that salvation. And so in Christ, we get both glory, the, the fullness of God's glory, and the knowledge of the fullness of God's glory found in that one man. And that is the revelation of nothing but salvation for us. And in Jesus, all of these things meet. He is the one who brings us the knowledge of God. He is the one who brings us the justice of God. He is the one who shows us how to walk in the world and where to walk in the world. He is the one who gives us the glory in salvation. He is our protection from those who would do us harm. We have access to nothing of the glory of God and nothing of the knowledge of God outside of Christ. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what he means is, I am the brilliance and the radiance of the living God. Without him, we are in the dark, even if our eyes can see. And please, what you ought not think is that Jesus is something like Moses. That is, Moses came down out of the mountain and his face shone forward. That just because Jesus says, I know where I have come from and I know where I am going, that because he's come out of heaven, his face shines because he has also been with God. Jesus says that, but he doesn't mean that he's like Moses. Moses is nothing more than a moon. Jesus is the sun. Yes, that's a sort of a dumb plan words, but that didn't mean to be. He is the son. He is S-U-N and S-O-N. He is both of these things. Jesus is different from Moses as the sun is from the moon. The sun is the source of our food, source of our heat, the source of our warmth, the source of much hope for us. The moon does something similar. It provides clarity at, at night, but it does so only as it reflects the very radiance of the sun back to us. It has no light. It only points to the light. It can only tell of the light. It can only guide you to what is the true light. But it will never be light in itself. Given only the moon, the dark side of the earth would die. Given the sun, it will flourish. Jesus is not the moon. 
He is not claiming to reflect the glory of God. He is not claiming to reflect the knowledge of God. He is not claiming that it, it sort of bounces off of him or that he is a bringer of it. He is saying rather that he is the brilliance of God, that he is the one that light shines forward from. He is the source of the light, not simply what it reflects off of. He is the very embodiment of the brilliance of God. Colossians puts it this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen, this was shrouded, right? You would expect that saying something like this, the Jews who were standing around would be awestruck. And so it's shrouded. It's, it's veiled just like Moses had to veil it. And every once in a while we get a glimpse of Jesus revealing himself like this. We get it when Paul sees him in Acts 9. We get it in the transfiguration in Matthew 16 where, where Peter and, and friends get to see him transfigured. We, we have a picture of this as John sees him in Revelation burning like the fire. We get pictures of it. But it is hidden from us now. But let us not forget this fact. What we are being told of today will one day be revealed as truth. And we will see him. We will see him as the very image of God. We will see him burning forward with the light of a thousand suns. He is the radiant one, the very light of God. God's exact imprint and nature. He is clothed in human flesh, but he is no less the radiance and the picture of God. He is the radiant one. But Jesus is also then the revealed one. He is the revealed one. If we are understanding him right, this is quite the claim to make. It's not a minor claim to claim that you are the light of the world, to claim that you are the very glory and essence of God, if that is indeed what he is claiming. When someone makes a claim about themselves, the larger the claim, the greater the proof that's needed. If I came before you and told you, as I'm about to do, that I tied my own shoes this morning before I came in here. Very few of you would need proof. Even though I'm standing behind an opaque pulpit and you can't see my shoes, you would just assume that they're tied because I'm a grown boy. Okay? Now, if I told you that I tied my shoes with each hand at the same time, one hand per shoe, that you might want proof of. And if I said even further than that, that I tied them with my mind, that is a trick worth seeing, right? And so you wouldn't believe that. I don't know why you would believe any of it, but I, you wouldn't believe that unless you had proof of it. The more, the, majest, more, uh, the more majestic the claim, the more proof you need for it. So the Pharisees aren't really way off when they say, listen, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your witness isn't true. If what they mean by that is simply the fact that if you're going to come and you're going to claim stuff like that, you need more than just words any moron can stand up before people and make great claims about themselves. We have people do it all the time. They might not make this kind of claim about themselves, but they make claims about themselves all the time. If that is what they meant, then ironically, they find some sort of parallel with what Jesus says back in John chapter 5. Back there in verse 31, Jesus says this, If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Again, Jesus says, if I bear a testimony about myself, it is not true. My testimony is not true. Now, indeed, some have looked at 
what we have in 8.14, and some have gone all the way back to 5.31 and said, there seems to be a contradiction here. In one place, Jesus says, if I witness about myself, my witness is not true. And here in 8.14, he says, if I witness about myself, my witness is still true. And they say, this is just a contradiction. This can't possibly be okay. Well, assuming that John, who wrote his gospel, over the course of years, was not a blathering idiot. There must have been some sort of a reason why these two very contradictory things are sitting next to one another, and indeed there is. While in 531, Jesus says that he bears witness about himself, the second verse in that is very important. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. In other words, you can neglect my testimony if you want to, but there is another one. My testimony, if I just showed up on my own and I simply told you about myself on my own, it wouldn't be true. In chapter 5, there happened to have been a very important event that witnessed to Jesus' ability and Jesus upholding the very righteousness of God. The fact that he healed a man who was lame for 38 years. The man got up and walked. And Jesus is able to look at that and say, hmm? I mean, if what I'm saying is false, then why is that man walking around? God is clearly with me on this. He's clearly helping me. Something, again, that will come up in John chapter 9. In 8.14, he says almost the same thing. He says, my witness is true, but why is his witness true? Look at verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In other words, Jesus' witness is true because the Father always bears witness with him. It's exactly what he says back in chapter 5. If I was by myself, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But I'm never by myself. The Father is always bearing witness about me. He is always there doing exactly what I did. If, if Jesus came down and claimed that he was the light of the world, that he was the long-awaited-for Messiah, that he was the very nature and imprint and salvation and glory of God, and did so without any sort of support, did so without any sort of miraculous work, then you would have every reason to suspect him. But Jesus has come with miracles. He has come with testimony. He has come fulfilling as he goes. But I think his claim here is even greater than what he made in chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, he had just freshly done a miracle. And he points, I think, directly to that miracle. But there is no miracle here. This is some time later. And while that miracle was probably fairly hard to forget, no one's going to forget the fact that an atrophied man got up and walked again. At the same time, there is no miracle here. I think what Jesus is saying is something more important. That he is not just being witnessed to by God. After all, any angel set from heaven can do miraculous works. Any person gifted by God can do wonderful deeds. And these would be exactly the same thing as what Jesus said back in chapter 5. God is with me. You know that he is with me because I'm doing these things and because these things are true. God must be with me. If I was a liar, if I was a fake, if I was a fraud, God would not support me in these things. But Jesus is claiming something even greater here. He is claiming that God is always with him, that everything he does is witnessed to by God. Jesus says that he has come from heaven. It's a place but it's clearly also coming from God. He talks here even of the Father who sent me in verse 18. Where he has come from and where he's going might be a place, but that place is also the very abode of God. When he talks like this, he means that he has come from God. It's not just that the Father witnesses to his miracles. It is the fact that the Father witnesses to everything he does. 
Everything that Jesus does is what the Father does. Everything that the Father does is what Jesus does. The two work together. They always work together. Their work is inseparable from one another. Back in chapter 5, Jesus says, I do whatever the Father, I see the Father do in 519. In 530, I do nothing. I can do nothing unless the Father shows me. And whatever I see from the Father, I will do. So therefore, everything that Jesus does, every single thing he does is witnessed to by the Father because the only things that the Father witnesses to are the things that Jesus does. Every act they make together, they make together. This doesn't mean that they are the same. They're not the same. But it does mean that they always work together. Every single thing Jesus does is supported and backed and witnessed to by God. Therefore, you cannot claim to know the Father without knowing Jesus. To know the works of the Father is to know the works of Jesus. You also can't claim to know Jesus and not know the Father. To know the works of Jesus is to know the works of the Father. To see Jesus in action is to see the Father in action. Because everything they do, they do together. They are inseparable. In creation, the Father and the Son work together. In wrath, the Father and the Son work together. In justice, the Father and the Son work together. In salvation, the Father and the Son work together. The Father and the Son are never at odds with one another. We we shouldn't ever think that at the cross, Jesus was being highly sympathetic to you while the Father was pouring out his wrath and anger and frustration. Jesus hates your sin as much as the Father does. And the Father wants your salvation as much as Jesus does. They work together, always together. There is never a breach in the Father and the Son's relationship. To isolate one is to misunderstand both. Jesus flat out tells the Pharisees this. You don't know where I'm coming from and you don't know where I'm going. And I know you don't know my father. You stand here and you ask me who my father is, which leads into a much longer discussion coming forward. But he says, you ask me who my father is. I know you don't know who my father is because you don't know who I am. This is the proof that he offers. The proof is that he is the one who has been revealed by the father. He is the one who has been sent by the father. He is the one who has been equipped by the father. He does everything that the father calls upon him to do. Everything that he does is what the father tells him to do. Everything that he does is what he has seen the father do. That means that he is the very revelation of the father. He is the one who is sent forward from the Father. Do you want to know what the Father looks like? He is spirit. You cannot see him, but he has sent his image, his perfect image, his radiant image in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the only place we ever, ever get that knowledge. There is no knowledge of God outside of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back to the original question, that doesn't help us. The question was, how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to know? Jesus, you're making these claims about yourself, but anyone can make these claims. How are we supposed to know? It's really odd proof. Jesus doesn't really give them proof here. He doesn't perform another miracle. He he doesn't walk on water. He doesn't heal somebody. He doesn't multiply fish and loaves. But it is proof of a sort. It's proof because, third, Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. He is the one who judges correctly. We don't judge correctly. This is something we, we've got to understand. We don't ever judge correctly. We can't figure out what's going on on our own. In the middle of these verses, in verse 15, Jesus charges the Pharisees and he says, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. The idea of them judging according to the flesh takes on a really strong tone here in chapter 8, given what we've already heard in chapter 7. 
is not just judging, it's condemnation. They, they are condemning him. They condemn according to the flesh. It's not like these people are sitting around trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. It's not like the Pharisees are coming back to him and saying, well, we, we, we really want to know more. Maybe we can make up our mind about you. That's not the point of what they're doing here. At the very end of chapter 7, they've sent the temple officers to arrest him. They berated the temple officers when they didn't arrest him. They made accusations against the crowd, thinking that they were accursed because they liked him. Even when one of their own groups stood up and said, hey, you guys, we might be snowballing this a little bit too quickly. They told him to shut up and go back to Galilee. They're not, they're not sitting on the fence here. He says, you're condemning me and you're doing so in the flesh. Take on top of this, the whole reason why Jesus was slow or hesitant to come back to Jerusalem in the first place was the fact that these people were seeking his life. He knows no amount of proof matters for them. He says that I don't judge anyone. Now, of course, this is the first advent, the first coming of Jesus into the world, and he doesn't need to judge anybody. This was a mission of salvation that he came on. We've already heard this back in John chapter 3, verse 17. After the famous verse 16, we read, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're already condemned. Jesus doesn't need to show up in judgment. He doesn't need to show up in condemnation. They're condemned already because of their evil works, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus has come to save from this judgment. But he will return and he will judge. But when he does judge, just like we got done talking about, he judges with the Father, so his judgment is always true, it's always right, it's always just. He is the righteous one. He is the one who comes to tell us what is good and true and right and what is not. Because we can't do that on our own. We are in separably bad from our sin. We are united to it, and even in the best of moments, it leaks out from us, tainting everything that we say and everything that we touch and everything that we do. Listen, when we judge, even in our best moments, we are always fallible and fallen. Even when we get enough information to make a judgment, sometimes we are as confused as we can be about the situation of, that we are making judgment in. Sometimes we get all the information we want and we want to do what is right, but still our sin perverts that justice. We, we side with the poor instead of what is right or we side with the rich instead of with what is right. Sometimes we want to pervert justice simply because we want to keep our own selfish interests on the top of the pile. But Jesus is never like this. Jesus always does what is right and good and true because he always judges according to the Father. The Father never has his judgment tainted with sin. And Jesus never has his judgment tainted with our fallen nature or even with our creaturely nature. His judgment is never tainted with selfish motivations. It's never tainted with jealousy or bribes or expediency with hatred or despair. None of these affect the judgment that Jesus brings forward because Jesus is the righteous one. But friend, you and I are not. And neither are the Pharisees. The Pharisees judge Jesus according to the flesh. John doesn't just mean sin, but he simply means according to human standards, according to the normal way in which we judge everyone. These standards are not always wrong, but they certainly are here. The word flesh here implies that this is all they are considering. All they are considering is what they can see and take in with their eyes, their fallen nature, what they can make sense of. They're using their own reason, just like Eve did with the apple back in the Garden of Eden. 
Pharisees can't see past their own nose, past their own desires, to see what is good and true. And that's why they don't see Jesus for who he is. And neither do we. It's very easy to stand up and to criticize the Pharisees here. But friend, we, we need a huge dose of humility. The only reason any of us see something different than what the Pharisees see here, the only reason we respond differently than what the Pharisees do here is because the grace of God has been given to us and it wasn't to them. Jesus says back in chapter 6, verse 63, the spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. If you were to judge only according to the flesh, you would never choose Jesus. Jesus has already said in order to see, to have the light of the kingdom come into your eyes, in order to see the kingdom, you must be born of the spirit. You cannot see the kingdom without the spirit. You cannot know it without the spirit. If you stand in judgment over the Pharisees, know that you do so. You do so over the judgment of God. Don't be prideful. Jesus reminds them that even the law says that the witness of two people is true. The revelation points out to them that the witness of two people is true. He says the Father is witnessing an eyewitness, and your law says that. But the Father doesn't direct them in their witness. The revelation of God doesn't direct them in their their judgment of what is going on in front of them. And I wonder how much ours is. How much is your judgment of who Jesus is actually actually taken up with the words of Scripture and what has been revealed and how much is taken up with what you want to be true about Jesus and about God? Do we judge Jesus according to the flesh? Do we ignore what Scripture says about him? Do we ignore what the Old Testament says about him? Do we ignore what the book of Revelation says about him? Sometimes people want a Jesus who is just filled with kindness and compassion and they don't want a Jesus of judgment and wrath. But no one speaks of hell more in the Bible than Jesus does. No one warns of the dangers that are coming forward to men more than Jesus does. What they want, what they feel like they truly need is something that is uplifting, something heartwarming, something comforting. Or for others, what they want is a God who is full of anger and spite, who has come to crush his enemies and gives no company to sinners. Listen, the Bible has plenty to say about both of these things. The Bible speaks much of both wrath and love. But friend, regardless of which way you lean on that, the Bible has a lot of bits about God that ought to make you uncomfortable. And Jesus has much to command us and say to us that ought to make us uncomfortable. And it is there, it is there that we are to not ignore what Jesus has said. We're not to simply move on to things that we like to have said. It's bad for your soul. Those things are there to make your for you to see yourself in a different light, for you to see God in a different light, for you to be changed and molded by the word of God into what Jesus wants us to be. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we flat out deny it. We know it's there. We read it and we just say, well, that's not true. That's not the Jesus I serve. I don't want a Jesus of wrath. I don't want a Jesus of of compassion to people who are not like me. Jesus sounds like someone who only affirms you, who only says exactly what you would say given the same situation. There's no rebuke for you. There's no commandment for you. There's no correction for you. There's no chastisement for you. Sometimes along there, we twist the words of Scripture. We hear chastisement. We hear rebuke. But that rebuke is always for other people. It's never actually for us. The Jesus that is presented is always the Jesus who's correcting everyone else. He's never correcting us. This way of reading 
judges God's revelation of himself simply by the flesh. And it judges Jesus by the flesh. It makes Jesus into who you want him to be, not who he is. We can do this because the text stands between us and Jesus. The Pharisees didn't have the opportunity. Make sure that you are not doing these things. Let Jesus stand as he is in Scripture. Let Jesus be who he is in Scripture. Because more than anything else, what happens is not us judging Jesus in Scripture, but it is Jesus judging us. And he judges with right judgment. He tells us what is righteous and what is good and what is true. This is why we come to follow him. Because we have recognized in Scripture that we ourselves are sinful. That we don't match up with what Jesus says and does. This is the whole point. This is why God reveals himself in his Son. To reveal himself is to give himself over to showing his love for sinners and his hatred of sin. This is why he dies on the cross and why God raises him from the dead. This is why we have salvation in Jesus and no one else alone is because Christ has come to be salvation for us, to give us good news of a God who loves us and is not willing to part with justice in order to love us. So he takes on the wrath of God himself. He takes on his own wrath. So we listen to what Scripture says because there is no Christian who is not a Christian who understands that he is sinful and he needs God to correct him. There is no Christian who thinks that he stands on his own perfectly right and righteous before God. Those are not Christians. Those are pagans. And they will get hell. The Christian is the one who knows that he is wrong before God, who sits humbly in front of God and allows God to tell him what is true because God is the righteous one and God in flesh is no less than Jesus. So we simply accept, we ought to simply accept what the Bible tells us. What it says is true about us. What it says is true about the world. What it says is true about Jesus. He is the one who is righteous and has died for us. He is the one who is radiant and gives us glory and knowledge and honor. He is the one who is revealed and shows us precisely who God is. What many people want when we talk about things like this, when we talk about proof, is a listing of pros and cons, uh, some substantive points that can get over your doubts about who Jesus is. You don't get many of them here. understand that. What you do have is a very simple call to follow. That's it. Because you're not righteous. You couldn't make the right judgment anyway. Listen, God could appear in flesh before you and you wouldn't make the right choice. I know you wouldn't, and I know I wouldn't, because I know that every single person in the book of John messes this up. Every single person in the book of Matthew messed it up. And Mark, and Luke, all the sheep scattered once the shepherd was struck because they didn't understand the power of God or what they were dealing with. You would fail in it as well. So the Lord is not terribly concerned with making sure that you understand all the finer points of arguing who he is and why he has come. But rather, he says simply, I'm the light of the world. Follow me. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not figure out that the Lord's okay by you. And then go in and experience him. But follow, taste, and see that the Lord is good. We don't always need what we think we need. You came here thinking that you wanted some reasons to believe. Perhaps you might leave with some. Perhaps you don't. 
But Jesus is calling every single person in here to continue following him. Walk in his light. Trust in him. Trust in his salvation provided for you on the cross. Trust that what he says for you is good and true and right. This message is not just for people who frankly don't know the Lord. It is for all of us. We don't always get all the knowledge we want. We don't always get to see the the future with clarity. But we can follow Jesus. And we can trust in his promises. Let us do that even today. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is better than we can possibly comprehend and certainly better than my feeble words have painted him this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see from Scripture the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might know and have experienced truly his salvation. Let sin not blind our eyes anymore, nor let the devil hold us in slavery to it, but give us freedom and light. Let us see the beauty of Jesus and worship him alone. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.